You grew up in Washington, D.C. What was your early musical life like there? Music was kind of in the fabric of D.C. when I was growing up. There are a lot of kind of community-oriented um, music-making opportunities, like up the road at Malcolm X Park, there was a kind of weekly drum circle on Sundays, and so that was like Caribbean-led, and um, there was kind of, you know, you could bring an instrument, kind of join in, learn the patterns. So kind of a combination of, you know, kind of events like that that I could publicly go to, and then small arts organization, like, so the Latin American Youth Center had like an art house that you could kind of sign up for spaces and each level was like a different medium. And then there was a place called Sitar Center that was near Adams Morgan and they had kind of more formal lessons, but you could also kind of like, you know, wink at the security guard and go to the instrument room and just kind of sit there for hours and hours um, and just, you know, play around. I can't stop listening to that piece that I opened up the program with or uh, with an excerpt of. It's called Open Work, Knotted Object, Trellis and Bloom, Lightning Ache, and it's by Inti Figus Visueta. And Inti was uh, a winner of the Hildegard competition held by National Sawdust, and that was the National Sawdust Ensemble performing that piece live. I faded it down because we only have so much time, but I highly recommend hearing the rest of the work. It is this gorgeously realized, lush piece of music that you can really lose yourself in. Really an immersive piece, I think, in many respects. And we heard Inti talking with Relevant Tones' Stephen Rawson. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead, and we are going to devote this program to the music of Inti Figus Visueta. And I'm going to hand it over to Stephen because he did a marvelous job of talking with Inti. So uh, enjoy the rest of the program. Were literature and poetry really important growing up? Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, probably, um, honestly, more so than music. Um, and that was my preferred, like, like, if I could be left alone to do anything, that was probably what I was doing my family they're, they're both community organizers and so they keep kind of a large library of literature ranging from kind of like manuals and reflections on aspects of community organizing or popular education and stuff and then also like right next to those are like books of poetry like you know joy harjo and like you know uh gabriel garcia marquez that that magical realism bit was was very much around my household so like I was reading these books that I like didn't really understand the themes of, but I was like, oh, like he shot him. That's exciting. And I was like, no, this is a deep metaphor for the pain of the family, <laughs> like generations past, you know. So I think there was also um, like I was reading things that were very poetic, but eight year old me, I, you know, maybe I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Joy Harjo. I know she's one of your favorite poets. Uh, what did you find in rereading her work? I was kind of looking around a lot a few years ago for things that were near me, like things that had kind of, I had looked at or I had read before, but maybe I hadn't really, really looked at, like really kind of delved into. With Joy Harjo's work, I was, I was, I was pretty captured by the, by the imagery, by the descriptions of land and the kind of uh, reflections of land on body and kind of this idea of wilderness as this kind of like pristine thing. Um, and I, I felt like in her in her writing that there was kind of this, you know, attention paid to like the details of the lands that kind of spoke differently about those <laughs> those assumptions. Um, and that, you know, there were there were things that felt reflective to me when I was trying to think about how to write music. 
a lot of my initial approach towards writing was like, how do I make the instrument sound like the instrument um, versus like, how do I make the instrument sound like I've heard other people make the instrument. And so part of that I felt like was trying to look at the nature of it. Like, what are the aspects of it? What are the, you know, the details, the crags, all that, all that kind of stuff. And so I, I, I felt a kind of parallel in, you know, in, in the details of her writing and, and those imaginative um, ways of putting things together with trying to look at, look at instruments as like, the whole like the whole thing and then not like a set of references or a set of semantic meanings but actually just like the sound itself and like what is like what is the what what are the parts of the sound that i feel like can be brought in or out or, or, or looked at closer you wrote a piece for percussion trio called to give you form and breath which comes from joy harjo's poem remember and in this piece you use um, glass bottles, non-resonating metal, and flower pots, and what you call ground objects. And I'm really fascinated by the idea that you're not, you're specific, but you're not um, exact about how big the glass bottles are, or the flower pots. The original commission when it was brought to me was like for mobile percussion setup. And so I think I was trying to, you know, I put my ears out and I, you know, looked at other pieces that felt like they had kind of distinct identities or distinct patterns or, or, or just that the sounds themselves were like kind of core to the way in which the piece was built. I think I came across David Lang's Anvil Chorus. Oh, and Sam Solomon's like How to Write for Percussion. Um, you know, I had a PDF of it. I was looking at it and it mentioned this piece. And so I, I know that I looked at it and it kind of, was talking about the the idea of specifying just like the resonance and the kind of uh, origin of an object that you ask someone to find. And so I think through that, there was kind of like, uh, you know, resonating recycled, uh, you know, resonating metal recycling recycled object or non-resonating metal recycled object. And I was like, oh, that's like a really, that feels like a really clear way to say something instead of kind of like asking people to look for affect or to look for a specific timbre or something where timbre might come from like they're, they're creating a parameter around the selection and then they can kind of find it themselves instead of relying on me giving them a reference point to try and relate it to. And so, yeah, that, that was where, um, you know, a lot of that stuff came from. And so like glass bottles, I didn't specify the size of the bottle. So like the pitch of course is going to change, but like when I kind of, encounter percussionists who asked me about the piece, I, I feel a lot of joy from them with the idea of assembling their instrument oh, yeah. um, and the idea of being able to put themselves into that assembly. Like not only are they assembling their, their materials, but they're also constructing the way in which they will relate, you know, mallet to, to transition, to space, to form, to notation, to music.
I've been listening to your piece, The Motion Between Three Worlds, uh, over and over. This uh, was commissioned by the Primavera Project for the cellist Matt Hamovitz, and it has this beautiful graphic score. How did this project come about? I really like the form of the project, so I always talk about it. Um, I like things that branch. And so for that project, I know that he had put together like nine composers who he was interested in commissioning, and then he had them recommend three more composers, and then each of them recommend three more composers. The project kind of built itself out of like people who wanted to bring in other folks who they you know, wanted to hear, and I got the email and I was like, yes! Okay, new cello thing. Okay, this is my fifth cello thing of the year, but we're gonna do it. And I think part of it was that each cello piece before that had kind of focused on different aspects and had taken different notational strategies and had kind of tried to talk to um, the players in different ways. And I had, you know, I it had ranged from like uh, cellist Andrew Yi, who's like one of my best friends and and, and their uh, project and, and writing a piece for them, Music for Transitions, to everywhere from like really, really close to me to someone who I was just meeting. And before that um, piece, I was kind of thinking, you know, I don't really have the opportunity to kind of sit with him that much. Um, and, you know, part of part of it was that I had to start to transition my relationship with my work and my players, because before the pandemic, I was categorized as like being there. Um, and so because of that, I knew that I needed to make a score that could transmit some of that stuff that I, I didn't have the opportunity to otherwise. And so making it like hypervisual, um, giving it kind of both the poetic and cosmological leanings or, or material or however we want to talk about it or framing felt really helpful, um, especially when it's like when I'm asking, you know, I'm giving a large set of materials and I'm asking someone to construct them in time. I think that it's really helpful to have a visually stimulating object <laughs> to kind of help with that process, um, you know, and one that doesn't kind of just create possible connections, but create gravity of connections or, or, or flow lines that, that feel like the page is itself kind of guiding that.
An overarching theme I find in a lot of your music is this sense of celebration, whether that's the intention to celebrate a particular idea or a perspective. I wonder why you choose to celebrate through your music and your art and how you encourage the musicians you work with to participate in that celebration. I try and shape my relationship to the world and to others through the, the joyousness of shared perception. Like, I mean, that's why I love art. <laughs> like, I don't know, I know that that's like really broad, but like you look at the same piece and everyone sees like a million kinds of, you know, forms or, you know, a million details. And really like, I've found that the enjoyment that I get most is when I give space to others to comment upon those things or to look at them. I, I might look something, I look at, you know, a painting or a, something happening in the world or a tree or something. And I'd be like, okay, so I, you know, let's say like need to write a piece about this tree for some reason, like I've chosen it. Like, I don't know if my orientation and perspective of the tree necessarily needs to be what's reflected when everyone's kind of looking at an object. Instead kind of, you know, what what is the joy in that observation and interpretation and, and sharing of that thing? And I think that that's a joyous process um, and, and, a, and a celebratory one because it, I think it's a joy to dig into something and to like, to focus on something collectively. And from working with folks, that's, I think that's what folks want when I bring a score. You know, it's, it's about all these kinds of contextual things and also the relationships in the room and the relationships of the people in the room to me. And like, when I kind of give a piece to people um, and they look at it, I try and bring in the sounds and ways of music making that I hear in, in others. You've had the opportunity to write a lot of music for string quartet and for so many prominent ensembles from Kronos to Ataka, Spectral, Jack, Public Quartet. What draws you to this formation of musicians and this medium? I think that there's something special, <laughs> so something special in, in the instruments themselves and, and also to the kind of people who maybe are attracted to forming those ensembles. I feel like particularly with those pieces, I have a lot of kind of leeway and permission to kind of work in um, like perception based instructions and in uh, talking about like how I want people to relate to each other's sounds, like maybe because of the kind of, um, you know, they, they are a homogenous ensemble. And so, um, you know, blending kind of happens quite easily. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe a little bit less focus is put there. And so maybe we can put more focus in other places or something. We've mentioned these kinds of more prominent ensembles. Um, something that's been amazing about working with them has been kind of the amount of music that they've played and recorded yeah. and um, can kind of draw upon and reference um, and things sure. that I can listen to. And I think I mentioned this before, but like, you know, I think a, a big part of how I try and approach finding materials is through kind of research of previous things that people have had under their fingers or in their ears or something. One thing that I feel like happens in classical music a lot is that there's the idea that like people are interchangeable, but instruments aren't. Um, and so, you know, there's the idea that if you write a string quartet, you're writing it for every string quartet in the world to play. And it, you know, it feeds into all these kinds of difficult pedagogical tools that 
uh, I feel like often get put on composers, you know, this idea of efficiency and notation and legibility and all this stuff, all of which kind of works to streamline that, the communication between composer and player. And I felt like with a lot of these ensembles, I approached them with like, hey, I have my own way of communicating. I would love to share that with you. And I would love to like make music with you. Are you interested? <laughs> um, and, you know, just receiving really positive responses to that kind of that kind of approach. I want to ask about your piece, T and Mikasa for string quartet and playback. This is such a beautiful and moving piece. Did this start with the stories or the tea? Yeah, I mean, that, that piece was like a box nexus turning point. You know, I, I left uh, Boston pretty, pretty um, not happy um, and not really sure what was going to happen <laughs> with anything. And um, I got this invitation from Angelicron um, to write a new piece for the new Latin Wave Festival that was happening in Brooklyn. And to me, like, this like email message came out, like it was just like a godsend. Like I was just like, oh my God, yes. For string quartet, yes. For a space of like all like, you know, brown, second gen, Latinx, like peoples, yes. For also a space that isn't classically oriented, that's going everywhere from like pop art to super experimental, like this like entire space that feels so Right. And I think, you know, part part of the idea of using recordings of people was this kind of complex feeling about what um, what testimony and embodiment and disembodiment all meant when it came to music. The the way that the piece started was I, I put out a call to my community. I posted a thing. I said, hey, y'all, um, I'm trying to make a piece. I'd love to, you know, just want to hear a little snippet of one minute just talking about childhood, about anything. I'd love to just focus on queer and trans people of color. One of the things early on that felt really easy was that I was able to use every single piece of audio that people sent me um, so that there wasn't a kind of weird, like any kind of filtration that happened. It was just kind of like, I put out a call, that's what I got, that's what the piece is. And so, yeah, so, so part of it too was just how, how do I also give form to the idea that these conversations aren't singular, that through all these stories, nothing changes. So like, how does the form of the thing change through the addition and the layering of, of story? And then, you know, all the other sounds came from my house. Um, so like uh, making tea and, um, you know, miking a drum really weirdly or like using a transducer on my octave mandolin that's all detuned in different ways. Like, like those were things that just felt like, I was like, okay, this sound, it has a gravity and a sense to it. Now all of this is what a string quartet is going to interact in and be within. Labels. Everywhere I go, someone is trying to slap one on me. Feeling it. Not very quiet. Woman. Old enough. Professional. On minimum wage. The layer for today. Skin. Woman. He told me that because I did not fear love, that I was less than. He told me that because of who I love, that I am that. You tell me that my being is wrong. But it is you who fears, and who does not love. And it is you who is wrong. 
Woman. From birth you assign me with a coded vocabulary. From birth you teach me that I must be a pawn. From birth you demand my compliance. But what if I refute your violent vocabulary? I will ascend above your rigged game and I refuse to comply. Of color. Born of my ancestors' joy, you alienate me from them. Born of a different skin color, you scream that I am not worthy to be called black or indigenous. Born of my parents, you insist that I do not belong. But my ancestors are with me, and I with them. I am worthy, and I belong here on this earth. Being a woman of color, I have known love and fear, right and wrong. I have fought their violence and vile words. I refuse to play their game and to comply. And I know that I belong here on this earth where my ancestors once stood because I am worthy of this life. I didn't come out as gay until my senior year in high school, and I didn't come out as non-binary until I graduated college, but growing up black and bullied in the South carried over a lesson that I still find applicable for continuing to grow up as a queer person of color, and that lesson is learning how to live a life truest to yourself. I found that the communities I found myself in always had pressures to conform to what people in said communities saw and desired, like stereotypical personalities and the body characteristics that complemented. It's so easy to get caught up in what other people in your circles expect from you, and you'll find that the external forces in the world will tear you down the worst when you live for something or someone that isn't yourself. And of course, by no means is it easy, but defining your life by the standards that only you uphold will make all of the hardships worth it. Me equals primary and secondary schools equals Sokoto, Kaduna State. What do you know about the so-called Fulani Don't talk for the sake of making sound. Don't create a war for the sake of being heard. Don't make up my history. Ask me. Ask an African. Ask our elders. And bow when you do. I have never been enslaved. And what can I say? I grew up black, gay, a classical musician in the quote-unquote United States of America in the 80s and the 90s. It was the time of Reagan, Clinton, and Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was the time of D.A.R.E., drug abuse resistance education. 
where drugs were planted in black communities and examples were made of black people in the media. I remember watching these stories, reading the newspaper articles, seeing images of black people being thrown in jail, listening to the stereotypes of black people as welfare hoarders, abusers of the system. I remember the LA riots. I remember the images of black people destroying things, taking TVs. I even remember shows like In Living Color and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in their own way making fun of these looters in the LA riots and talking about these situations with humor and self-deprecation and elegance, but not fully understanding how all of this related to me because with all of these images, I didn't even have a pride in being black and being queer. And I had a little bit of a pride in being a classical musician, but I didn't see many people who looked like me in that world. So it's not as though I could have formed a strong community that gave me any support. I had no support. I didn't have 100% acceptance in each of these communities, in each of these boxes. So I fended for myself. sisters essentially. She was like about like okay. five years older than me. My, and my like, mom had been I here really loved her five years. I looked up to her. Had had mm-hmm. I guess like I was just my like grandmother asked had been married for almost a decade. So one night um, I had three children. she was babysitting us and later would have been like I had to have been like Am I eight or something like that. I've never been she's the same person for almost a year. Or just like maybe she wasn't babysitting us, but she was over it. And I had been doing something to annoy her, I think. My grandmother, my mother, and my grandmother. Uh, she asked me to come down with her to the basement. I think my life is really lucky to raise that boy. My chosen family was at a time that kind of became the extended community of people around the world who have assisted in my upbringing. Primarily, it's because my mom was a single mom. She was also separated from my dad. I think she would do that all the time. People still really look down on me. And so my mom had to go through school. She had a day and then she got a little bit. Um, 
and my grandparents to take care of us. Mom's friends from school and outside that school would come over and help babysit me. Just okay, a lot of the relationships are still around now, and I really was a love and appreciate all these adults who participated in building this warm and safe community for all of each other's children. And I'm really grateful to that experience, especially now because now I feel like I learned the basics of community building uh, with that as a base shit and I like community building based on love uh, which is what I think I have that like mattress covers and do whatever I am the golden child and puts it over my body and now and then because you have a point small because I'm eight years old and then she tells me food growing up were these little bean curd pouches stuffed full of vinegary white rice. The kind of thing you can find at every supermarket sushi stand now, but back then it had to be homemade. They were squishy and lumpy and sweet and felt like dessert for dinner, like you were living impulsively and eating waffles or pancakes instead of an actual meal. I don't think my mom ever knew what they were called, because we just called them rice bags. A name that if you look up now, you just get a bunch of links for grocery stores and crafty totes from Etsy. Still, that name was a really distinct sort of feeling. Same as my great aunt putting down dollar store doilies on top of her New Year's Day lacquerware, or my grandfather stuffing a piece of old napkin between two chopsticks with an elastic band so I could stop dropping stuff at lunch. There were a lot of things like that. The kind of feeling of how things were supposed to be, and the feeling of how things just were. Always knowing the taste, but never knowing the words. At school, I just told them my favorite food was soup. You wrote a piece of music for the Earspace Ensemble called Music for Shapeshifters. And I really see this piece as um, a tribute or an homage to shapeshifters. Uh, I remember growing up uh, when I was young, reading books like the Animorphs series or certain cartoons, and that being my early exposure to this idea of, of shape-shifting. And of course, it's really big in popular culture today in a, in a problematic way and very different from how you understand it. I wonder what shape-shifting means to you personally and why you chose to write this tribute to shape-shifting. I think for me, I... You know, I totally agree. Like shapeshifting has been something that I encountered a lot in, you know, the books I read growing up and in 
you know, particularly, you know, sci-fi and fantasy and stuff. I think maybe there it's a little bit less inherently negative. Sometimes, you know, it's a little bit more interesting, but definitely in mainstream media, shape-shifting is kind of characterized by like loss of control, loss of bodily autonomy, um, loss of normalcy of, you know, your, your ability to kind of interact and be a part of community. And I think part of kind of liminality and, you know, thinking about it and engaging with it and encountering it in like multiple intersections of identity and experience and stuff in my life has, has kind of brought me to the point where, you know, shape-shifting feels like a very accurate description of what it takes to survive and thrive and interact and, and communicate, you know, clearly sometimes in super different spaces. I think that uh, there's also kind of a lot of uh, literature and background and imaginaries um, in trans communities and in queer, trans, Black, Indigenous, POC communities, um, specifically around shape-shifting as a kind of transformative and, and empowering tool. For the piece itself, I, I had thought a lot about the idea of chamber music, um, the group that wanted, uh, wanted the piece, wanted a, a piece specifically for kind of an online format. Um, and so they, they asked uh, composers to kind of approach that in whatever way that we wanted. And so for mine, I, I really wanted to approach the idea of the ways in which we kind of shift and morph ourselves within musical spaces and within musical contexts. And I felt like a kind of mixed chamber ensemble was a really great, a great place for that to happen where roles of kind of soloisticness uh, or um, accompaniment or back, you know, background or texture or um, long tones or, you know, whatever that, that there was kind of a shared um, element between a bunch of uh, the players that they could kind of shift in and out of. Um, and so that was the main imaginary space for the piece was, you know, the idea of kind of interpreting this very graphic score that I made to kind of ins inspire and generate musical content that would either be uh, consciously placed as like a foregrounded element within a, a layered recording or a backgrounded element um, yeah. and how much, uh, what that balance was. Music for Shapeshifters is a longer piece, so I'm going to excerpt it. And I want to thank uh, Stephen Rawson for his wonderful interview with Inti Figus Visueta. And you can check out more of their music at intycomposes.com. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission to bring musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org. For Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bosted. Thanks so much for listening.
Thank you. 